Good morning, everybody. That's really a, a wonderful way to start the day. Good morning, everyone. That's better. Uh, I got a text in the middle of the week. I was out of town, and I got a text in the middle of the week from Sean, and Sean said, uh, I need someone to pinch hit for me because I have to pinch hit for Tom up at East. Would you do it? And I said, fine. He said, I'll send you my sermon, which is amazing to think that in the middle of the week he already had it written, which means he's really on the ball because that's not usually the way preachers work. They kind of wait sometimes till later in the week to see what happens. And uh, Tom said, well, you know, I was going to preach that sermon, so I'll send you my sermon too. <laughs> and you know what? I didn't use either one of them. Uh, you know, remember the story about the armor and, and you know, fighting Goliath and, and David said Saul's armor just doesn't fit, you know. That's kind of the way it is. It's hard to take somebody else's word. But let me tell you, there are two really good sermons. Uh, so you, you can uh, listen uh, to Sean's sermon online this week. It'll be there. Um, and because of that, uh, no sermon slides. This is old school. No points on the screen. If you've got a Bible, you're going to have to actually follow along. Uh, you know, it's going to be old school. So we're in the life and times of Elijah in this series just like us, to think back that far, to think, could anybody in that day and time be just like us? But we know on the inside, we're all still the same. Life is different in those days, but in some ways, it's very much the same. Um, have you noticed how many choices that we have available to us in the course of a day? Uh, New York uh, columnist uh, David Brooks claims that America is experiencing what he calls a choice explosion. So many choices. He said Americans now have choices over more things than any other culture in human history. That might make us different from the days of Elijah. We can choose between a broader array of foods, media sources, lifestyles, and identities. In some ways, this is a positive trend, but he says it's becoming incredibly important to learn to decide well. I understand that. Take grocery shopping, for instance. How hard is it to find exactly what you want? I, when I was, this, is, this is when I was a boy. My mom gave me this list. And I walked down to the corner to Breedlove's store in Washington, Indiana. And I handed Mrs. Breedlove the list. Now, this makes me seem really old, but I, I, I'm not that old. And, you know, there's a counter there. And most of the stuff wasn't out where you could just pick it out. She had to go back and pick out the stuff. Now, there were some counters and things out here, and that's what I got to do, I suppose, but she basically filled my order. It's kind of like Kroger, you know, when you pull up and they fill the order and they bring it out to your car. She did the same thing many years ago, but it wasn't like there was 17 varieties of peas or carrots or whatever, there was just one thing. So you didn't have much choice. It wasn't very overwhelming. A box of Cheerios is a box of Cheerios. Now, if you haven't been to the store lately, a box of Cheerios is not exactly a box of Cheerios. Have you tried, I mean, there's plain Cheerios, there's honey, there's frosted ones, and then there's the off-brand Cheerios, and then there's the Cheerios in the bag. And even Cheerios, there's a choice. We find there's so many choices available to us. Uh, someone said the average supermarket carries 48,750 items, more than five times the number of items uh, just back in the 70s. Uh, the, the Superstore Tesco in Britain stocks 91 different shampoos, 
93 varieties of toothpaste, and 115 household cleaners. It's no wonder sometimes you go to the store and you spend a lot of time because you can't figure out which one to get and which one is most new and which one is most improved or which one you'd like because the old stuff is better than the new stuff. Tropicana turns out more than 20 varieties of uh, juice. Walmart and other of the big box stores carry over 100 different types, 100,000 different types of stuff you can buy. And of course, if you've ever tried to watch something on Netflix or any of those kinds of things, there's so many choices to pick out it's overwhelming. Only one store I know of now kind of has gone the other way, Aldi. They've made their market by making it very simple. Few choices, and they're, it's, it's blowing up worldwide. It seems like we want fewer choices. And don't even get me started on like fast food places with the menus up there. Don't get me started on that. all those choices. Or the Cheesecake Factory, how about that one? Has anybody been there lately? The menu is overwhelming. We have so many choices that sometimes we are frozen in those choices or we can't make the choice because what if we make the wrong choice because the right choice might just be around the corner. You ever been there? You know, what if I order this and then somebody else brings this out? This looks better than this. So I'm just paralyzed by these choices. Now the internet, of course, is a great place for information. I'm facetious with that. But I looked up how many choices do we have in a day and the internet says we have 35,000 different choices that are available to us today. Now, I, I'd never found where anybody of any note said that was true, but I found 35,000 several times. Even if half of that is true, think how many choices that we have in a day. This is unconscious choices to breathe and, you know, put on our shirt or whatever we do, drive our car, but also those conscious choices we make. We are bombarded with those to the point we're almost overwhelmed. Now, today's story, we find that in 1 Kings 18. So if you have your Bibles, blow, dust them off and turn to 1 Kings 18 because I'll be reading uh, the story to you off and on as we go along. Uh, this is the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, if you've ever been to Sunday school, our Bible school, our Christian camp, this story is a famous story. In fact, at camp, a lot of times they like to enact this story and have fire come down from heaven at some point without burning down the camp. But this is a great one uh, for kids. It's a good kid story. Many of you know it well. But in case you don't and you want the bottom line so that you can drift off in a minute, here's the bottom line. It's found in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's the point of that story that we'll be looking at. Let me put it another way. You always have a choice. No decision is a decision. So Israel and its leaders have a history of trying to have it both ways without having to choose. They follow the God of their ancestors, Jehovah or Yahweh, and he delivered them from slavery and you know, brought them into the promised land. And yet their kings keep bringing in outside influences with alliances from other countries and pagan, uh, pagan religions. Other, other gods have been brought in to Israel. And so they have the worship of their ancestral god who brought them out of Egypt. And yet all these other gods are worshipped as well because, you know, you, there's so many choices we better kind of hedge our bets and maybe this God's better than this God is better than this God. 
And so Israel at the, at the time of Elijah was worshiping many gods and not the one true God of Israel. And their kings would constantly stray and bring more gods in. And it happens all throughout history. If you read the First Kings and Second Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that this keeps happening. It, they get better and then they get worse again. They get better and they get worse again. They follow God and then they decide to bring the foreign idols in. And finally it leads to their collapse and their exile. But in this part of the story, we're still humming right along, trying to do both, trying to follow the God of Israel and also trying to hedge their bets and follow other foreign gods. So in this episode of Elijah's life, he is up against the wicked king Ahab. Now, the Bible says like, Ahab is the most wicked of all kings. He did more wrong in the sight of God than any other king. And his wife, do you remember his wife's name? Jezebel. I, I know of no person in this world who has ever been named Jezebel. Maybe you know someone, but apparently that's a name that people look at and say, that means evil. Because she also brought the foreign influences into the court. And of course, the prophets of Baal. He is one really bad guy. And so Elijah comes to uh, Ahab and he says, there's going to be a drought in the land. And it's not going to turn off until I say so. And so there becomes a drought in the land. Ahab, a little later on in the story, gets together with Elijah. And Elijah challenges him. Ahab says to Elijah, you've made a lot of trouble for us. It's your fault that we have this drought. And in 1 Kings 18, 18, here's what Elijah says. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. Now, why is that? He goes on to say, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. They did not respond to that call. No one stood up and said, Yeah, you're right. Amen, Elijah. Go for it. They said nothing. Remember, they're holding both opinions, trying not to have to side with one God or the other. It's interesting that Baal, the god of the Canaanites who was brought in to worship as well, Baal was considered the god of rain and the god of thunder. Now there is a little humor in this as is there a drought. And so they're looking to this god to worship to say bring us rain and this god hasn't seemed to bring them rain for all that period of time. The god of thunder, the god of rain is not responding. The people said nothing. He said, you're wavering between two opinions. Remember, you always have a choice. But no decision is a decision. So Elijah sets up this contest between the priests of Baal and him, representing the God of Israel. Let's read on in verse 23. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then they called on the name of Baal. That's the prophets and priests of Baal. From morning till noon, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. By the way, that word danced, that's the same word used up by Elijah when he said, waver between two opinions. How long shall you dance between two opinions, not deciding on one or the other? So they danced around, they wavered around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. By the way, that's, that's always kind of disturbing. They didn't just come up with this idea of slashing themselves. It says, as was their custom. Apparently, in the worship of this god Baal, they cut themselves to try to get a response from the god. And this was something that was regularly done. By the way, in the taunting of Elijah, uh, the New International Version is very sanitized. But in the original language, one of the things that Elijah says to them literally is, perhaps your God has gone to the bathroom and it's not available. Literally, that's what it says. He, he, this was no politically correct speech here. So they're cutting themselves. The blood is flowing from these priests who are dancing around. Nothing is happening. Midday passed, verse 29, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the evening sacrifice. Here again is the bottom line for this one. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So take note of this. All of this activity brings back about nothing. No one is there. So I'm reminded that no kind of ritual, ritual or religious experience can summon the power of a God who isn't there. Get that? No, no matter of religious things that we might do, if we're worshiping the wrong God, there is no response. We can be sincere in our worship, but if the object of our worship is an a God that's not there, that's not much worship. So let's finish the story, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been, turned, which had been torn down. Now there's a, there's a sign right there that Israel's been leaning towards the pagan god Baal. They've actually torn the holy place of God down from that mountain. And Elijah single-handedly rebuilds it. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seas of wood, a seed, excuse me. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering, and on the wood. Everybody knows if you get the wood wet, it doesn't burn. And then he says, Do it again. He said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench that was around the altar. So this is not just wood wet. This is wood soaking wet. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, 
Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Get the picture? The fire comes from heaven, burns everything up, and just burns that, that whole thing up. This is a demonstration of God's power in response to one of God's people. And they, he brings the people back to them in an act of worship. When we worship, we always worship in a way of saying, praise God, the Lord is God. We recognize him as our God. At least for the time being, Israel has a little bit of a turnaround. They recognize the one true God of Israel. In fact, what the prophets of the Bible are trying to do is to help Israel understand that there is one God, and his name is Jehovah, and there is no other God. I really think in most of the Old Testament up to this point, uh, the people of Israel really believed there were all sorts of gods everywhere, just like the, the rest of the cultures. And the prophets are bringing back to say, these gods, there's nothing behind them. They're just wood, and they're just stone. There's only one true God, the Creator, the one who delivered you from Israel. And yet they fight this temptation of wanting to worship more and more, more choices just in case they're not right. So what lessons do we learn? By the way, uh, you have to stay tuned next week. Spoiler alert uh, for what happens next because what comes up must come down. Uh, Elijah's on a mountaintop right now, but then he hits bottom pretty quick after that, so come back next week to get some of the rest of the story. So here are some lessons that we learn, I think, from this encounter of Elijah with King Ahab and the prophets. Number one, the people in this story are just like us. We can easily slip into following other pursuits. We may not have little idols that we put in our homes that we bow down to, but we can choose other things to follow. We can choose other things to place at the center of our life, so much so that we forget the one true God. And so while you will say, oh no, it would never be me to bow down to one of these idols or do human sacrifices or that sort of thing, we might easily say, I have let, or we might easily demonstrate that we have let something else come between us and the one true God something that we place on a higher priority. Louis, Louis Giglio said this, you have only one life, and you have only one life of worship. You have one brief opportunity in time to declare your allegiance, to unleash your affection, to exalt something or someone above all else. So don't waste your worship on some little god, squandering your birthright on idols made only with human imagination. Guard your worship and carefully evaluate all potential takers. You have a choice. To not decide is to decide. We can all easily slip into following other idols just like those people. Just like those people, number two, 
we can begin to think that all religions end up in the same place. I mean, after all, they're all pretty much the same, aren't they? They all talk about love and peace. Well, not all of them. All talk about getting along and understanding. And I suppose the people in Elijah's day were thinking, well, after all, you know, Baal has a temple. The God of Israel has a temple. We, they have priests. We have priests. They do sacrifices. We do sacrifices. That's pretty much all the same. You know, there's not much difference between that and that. And like them, we can begin to think that, and that can begin to throw us off track, off, basically off the path to the one true God. And so just remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, this is a bothersome statement. I, I don't know what to make of this. If you have uh, friends who are non-believing, if you have friends who are just not, they just don't know for sure about religions. All religions are confusing to them. This is a very divisive statement to them because this is a statement of Jesus. I, I don't know what else to do with this other than to say, as a follower of Jesus, I have to take him at his word. I don't know what that means. What does that mean for the unbelieving person? I have an idea, but they don't want to hear that there's only one choice. Some of us don't want to hear there's only one choice. We want, you know, 91 varieties of shampoo because we want choice. But there is only one choice. And like them, we can be fooled into thinking everything's just exactly alike. Everybody's, you know, you believe your way, I'll believe my way. We just all get along and love each other and sing songs. But at some point, you have to make a choice. I, a, a recent preacher talked about the difference between religions. And while at the, you know, have you heard the expression, all roads lead to the top of the mountain the same? You know, that's kind of, you know, they're all leading to, but if you think about it, that's kind of true. At the base camp, most all religions do have some of the very same values expressed. But they, as you get closer to the top, there's a difference. Christianity is the only one where God reaches down to, to touch people. Every other religion is trying to find that God. God, through Jesus, comes to us, to rescue us, to save us. That's the difference. At the top of the mountain, we, found, we find God reaching down to us, not him demanding that we reach up to him. So, another point that I've learned from this story is just like the people who went through religious experiences, acting spiritual does not mean you are close to God. Making sense? In fact, the people that, some of the people you know, maybe, that you work with or in your neighborhood have a you know, very spiritual acting, but you really know them. And you know there's nothing there except acting. Remember the story of Jesus he told about the ta tax collector and the Pharisee? And the Pharisee got up and prayed, God, you know, I'm such a wonderful person. I'm not like that guy over there. Remember that story? And then the, the poor little tax collector who nobody liked said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee went through the religious prayer business, but his heart wasn't with God. The tax collector didn't even want to be seen while he prayed. And the, the, Jesus said, the Pharisee got his reward by being seen. The, the tax collector's heart was right 
Just because you go through religious motions doesn't mean you're that close to God. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't come to church and pray, but it has to be done with the right spirit and the right heart. You can't just go to church and say, now I've done it. I can check that off for the rest of the week and do whatever I please. That's not the way it works. I've got seven, seven, 17 Bibles stacked up somewhere. Because I've got all these Bibles, I'm probably better off with God than somebody who has one Bible who's actually read it. No. We don't become spiritual by pretending to be spiritual. The last one, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I think it, re, uh, it should be repeated again. Faith is worthless if the object of your faith is worthless. So, I don't know a lot of people who have a lot of money. But I do know some people who've done really well and in a sense maybe made money, their career, their thing. And at the end of their life, they're not really happy. They made their God money, career. But at the end of, at the, end of the road, it doesn't bring them satisfaction. Years ago, I was sitting with a, a prominent businessman at lunch, and he was talking about his business. And he was a pretty good business. And it was obvious to me that he could have anything he wanted. And I was, here, here I am thinking, well, I'm hoping he's paying for this because I'm not sure I can even pay for this. But he did, thank goodness. But I was looking at him and thinking, boy, I, you know, sinfully, you know, I wish I was like him because he's got everything. And at the end of this, he looked at me and he said, I wish I could do what you do. He wasn't finding any meaning in that idol. He had everything he wanted, but he still couldn't find it. If the object of your faith is worthless, you have no faith. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are worthful. We are worth a lot because we follow Jesus. So what do we take away from the story? The question for us is the same question that Elijah asked his people. How long will you waver between two opinions? Who do you choose to serve? I heard a story about a young man who went to a card shop to find just the right card for his girlfriend. He told the clerk he wanted something special that would express his deep love and sentiment for the, for the young lady. And so she selected a card for him and she said, she said this is our most popular card. You're gonna, this is gonna be the one you like. He opened it up and the message read, to the only girl I ever loved. He smiled at her and he said, I'll take six. That's what we can't do. We can't have all of our options open. We have to not waver between two opinions, but we need to choose. Remember Yogi Berra's wisdom? When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Can't do that. You've got to choose. To not decide is to decide. So there may be three kinds of people here today. Maybe. One kind of person would be the person who says, I'm just not sure about the whole religious thing. 
and I'm just checking this out. Well, you're in the right place because all of us have questions. We're all at different places on our spiritual journey. We don't have all the answers, but we've decided to place our trust in God who demonstrates his love to us through Jesus. So if you're one of those people that's not quite sure, I would ask you to dare to pray this. God, if you're really there, show yourself to me. God, if you're really there, show yourself to me. Now, don't expect fire from heaven. I mean, it's possible, but I haven't had much fire from heaven lately. But God often sends other things your way to show that he's with you. It might be a circumstance. It might often be another one of the followers of Jesus who comes alongside you. But when you pray, if you dare to pray, God, if you're real, show me. Watch what happens next. Just might be him trying to get your attention. Now, you may have decided to follow Jesus today, but you need to ask yourself, are there any idols in my life that I've placed above my way of, of following Jesus? You've made the choice, but in the small daily choices, perhaps you go off track. Does your real life reflect in those choices, the 17,000 choices you make a day? Does it reflect that you are a follower of Jesus? You know, in a sports event, uh, every play counts. So a lot of times, except maybe with this one, with the, when the referees got it all wrong, but a lot of times the coach will say, we didn't really lose the game on that play. We lost the game on all these plays we missed before that one. Your life is a series of those kinds of choices. Are you off the track when you're thinking about those choices? You think, it doesn't really matter what I choose. If you are, the question I would ask is, how do you know what you're worshiping? Am I worshiping another idol? I don't even know it. Again, here's my favorite quote of all time from Louis Giglio. You simply, how do you know who you worship? You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne, and whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Look at your date book. Look at your checkbook. Look at your conversations. Whatever dominates those is what's on the throne. Are your decisions defeating you because you have other things on your mind? So you might ask yourself as you pray, God, how do you want me to use the income you've provided? God, how do you want me to raise my children? God, how do you want me, or even what kind of car do you want me to buy? I mean, do we ever even think in the small choices of life how we reflect the person and life of Jesus? So many things can get in our way. So you could be a person here today who says, you know, I've made up my mind. I've just not done it yet. What's keeping you, literally? What's holding you back from taking the plunge, so to speak? This could be your day to decide. How long will you waver between two opinions is the question. And that question is the question for all of us. Just like them, we need to answer that same question. When I was in church camp, um, we used to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. Anybody remember that song? It's kind of repetitive. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. But the bottom line is the same. 
I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. That's the commitment you make when you decide. Uh, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.